Okay, welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. Today our guest is Bruce Lawrence. Bruce Lawrence is Professor Emeritus at Duke University's Department of Religious Studies, where he also had appointments in the Departments of History and Asian and Middle East Studies. There he founded, then directed, the Duke Islamic Studies Center between 2005 and 2009. He received his PhD from Yale University and his bachelor's from Princeton University. He has written numerous monographs on the history of Islam in the Middle East and South Asia, including, but not limited to, New Faiths and Old Fears, the Quran, a biography, Sufi Martyrs of Love, and many, many more, including the book we'll be discussing today, The Quran in English, a biography, out from Princeton University Press in 2017. Welcome to the podcast, Bruce. Well, thank you, Nadir. It's my pleasure to be here, and thank you for organizing it. So we always start with a biographical question on the podcast, Professor Lawrence. How did you come to academia and specifically the study of Islam? Well, I certainly never anticipated either. Uh, when I was undergraduate at Princeton, uh, I began in 1958. I was uh, committed to doing uh, a program that would prepare me for foreign affairs, especially I thought I would be going to the diplomatic corps. Uh, and if not that, at least uh, something related to government or else international law. So those are those are pretty pretty much the set of interests I had. And then my freshman year, I, I stumbled into a philosophy class. I was interested in just sort of taking a general humanities course. And it was a philosophy course that was labeled Islamic philosophy. I thought, that's really weird. I didn't know there was such a thing. And the person who taught it was James Critchick. And Critchick uh, was not only a very brilliant intellectual and uh, marvelous uh, lecturer, but he also wound up being a very um, hands-on mentor for me. And uh, as I got deeper into that course and also uh, then into the study of Arabic, uh, Critchick, Professor Critchick, uh, encouraging more and more to sort of think about the deep scholarship that was involved in in the behind behind and and through the contemporary world. So I wound up taking um, actually four years of Arabic at Princeton, and then also did Turkish for uh, three years. Um, I don't I don't I think he's now retired, but. Norman Itzkowitz was uh, was both my teacher in Turkish and also in Ottoman history when I was an undergraduate. Um, but then I graduated, went into the Navy. I was also an ROTC. Um, while I was in the Navy, I, I used a lot of my Arabic, but but found that I wasn't so interested anymore in foreign affairs. And then I had a chance to go to Harvard for my MA. I left that out of my biography, but went there and migrated from Harvard to Yale for my PhD which I did with uh, Franz Rosenthal. And so I wound up really going from thinking about the contemporary Middle East to being deeply immersed, almost one might say marinated in the medieval Muslim world with Professor Rosenthal at Yale. But I also did Sanskrit because I was interested in kind of intercultural, cross-civilizational changes between Islam and other traditions. So I also did Sanskrit and learned Persian as well. And then found myself after graduating from Yale in a degree that crossed between Middle East and religious studies, found myself um, hired at Duke University, um, was able to take leave from there after tenure to go over to India for, for two years in the mid 70s. And there I learned, really learned Persian, not just um, makeshift everyday Persian, but also literary Persian, uh, as well as Urdu, and became interested in Islam, not just in general, but in South Asia. And ever since the late 70s until now, um, one of my interests has been not just uh, the Islamic past, but its development, the development of scholarship, and, uh, and of course, also communities 
and very much movements of different kinds that emanate from Asia. And that's pretty much it in terms of my biography. I went, you know, from, from Princeton to Harvard to Yale and then Oligar. I was at a place called Oligar Muslim University for two years in the mid 70s. Um, I've also taught at Chicago and Dartmouth along the way, but just for short stints. I also did one semester at, at Oxford in England. Uh, but pretty much my whole academic life, uh, over 40 years, I've been at Duke and retired from Duke in 2011. I mean, the one thing you sort of hinted as you ran us through your biography was just sort of the breadth and the depth of your work. You have all of these languages. And then we see this book, which is called The Quran in English. So I was curious about the genesis of the book, because you mentioned in passing in the text itself that it came out of another book project. Yes. Well, thank you. Uh, for connecting the two Quran books, I, I should say that in my brief o- overview of, of my journey as a, as first a, a student and then a scholar in the Middle East, larger Muslim world and Islam, I really had never thought of myself, and I still don't think of myself as a specialist on the Quran. I know people who are specialists, uh, and I greatly admire them, but I don't count myself as one of them. So I was really surprised Back in, I guess it was 2002, so 15 years ago, um, I was invited by a popular publisher, Atlantic Books, to do a book called uh, The Quran, Q-U-R-A, in the Quran, a biography, and I declined. Uh, and then the writer, came, the inviter came back and said to me, well, would you please, you know, give us some other names? And I did, and then uh, he wrote back, his name is Toby Mundy. He, Toby wrote me back and said, well, yeah, actually, we've considered all them, and we still want you to do it. And I really was curious, but really not tempted, because I had other book projects that I was doing at the time that I was invited to, to uh, pursue the Quran biography. But it was my wife, who also is a colleague of mine. She's not only um, my life partner and soulmate, but she's also... Uh, my goad and catalyst for a lot of things. And so Miriam, Miriam Cook is her name, Miriam said to me, uh, you know, why don't you do this? Because you've always talked about the Quran. This is a chance to do a different sort of Quran book. So with her encouragement and also with uh, supports she gave me in a couple of the chapters, uh, I decided to do this book, the Quran, a biography. It was part of a series called Books That Changed the World. And it was, there, I think there were eventually 10 books, but only one other that dealt with religion. And it was by a writer called Karen Armstrong, who's much more popular writer than I'll ever be. And Karen Armstrong wrote a book called The Bible uh, for the series Books That Change the World, The Bible, a biography, whereas mine was The Quran, a biography. So that, that book, uh, first of all, did two things that I've never done before in any book. Um, it, it gave me a sense that writing for a popular audience is, is, is far different than writing for one's colleagues or a larger academic audience. Uh, so one of the things I had to do, which I must confess is still very difficult for me, is to not include footnotes, <laughs> to eliminate all kinds of uh, documenting apparatus, whether it's endnotes or footnotes or even uh, bibliographies. And I, I protested to the editor when the editor told me I couldn't have footnotes. And I said, well, you know, how can I avoid plagiarism? Uh and actually, there's a woman editor who I worked with, and she said to me, well, what you do is you just have a section at the end called Selected Reading. And as long as you mention some of the books on which you've relied in the chapters, then you don't need to do particular footnotes if you're going to use something paraphrased rather than direct quote. And I must say, 
uh, I did 15 chapters. It was really, really difficult. But in a strange way, once I got used to it, it made me feel that I had not accurately written or not well written some of my earlier books because it was so much more easeful to read. And the only other thing which I had to do that was almost as hard as not including footnotes or putting that rolling them into something called selected reading at the end was to write um, insofar as possible to write direct discourse without using adverbs. It's it, it. I mean, I think you definitely learned a lot from it because this book, the Quran in English, the one we're discussing today and the Quran in English is spelled uh, K-O-R-A-N, and that's a very conscious choice on your end, and we'll get into that. Um, it reads very well. It, it definitely is something that a non-specialist can pick up. But I also think it's very funny. I, I hear that repeatedly from academics, that, you know, when they write for a popular audience, they write with lots of footnotes, and then they have to cut them out, and that's one of the most painful things they have to do. So I, I, I definitely empathize. So the way um, the Quran um, in Arabic has sort of been portrayed both in the historiography and the way academics approach it, but also in the way that Muslims themselves interact with the Quran. It's tied inherently to the development of the Arabic language. And you, of course, start off this book about the Quran in English with a whole chapter about the Quran in Arabic. So how did you go about sort of picking the story um, of the Quran in Arabic that were necessary to the telling of the Quran in English? Well, it's a great question, and it was one of the negotiating points I had with the editor, Fred Appel from Princeton University Press, who uh, commissioned this book. I mean, the reason why it's called, I didn't explain it, but I should just add, the reason why it's called the Koran, K-O-R-A-N in English, instead of the Quran in English, is when I did the deep history, I realized that the term Quran had a really specific trajectory, a genealogy of its own, and that if I was going to talk about a biography, not not my own overview or my own preference for what should be the Quran in English, I would have used, of course, the Arabic spelling Quran, Q-U-R-A-N. But since it's an historical work, it, it has, as it were, a trajectory that is diachronic rather than synchronic. I thought I should use this term, the Quran in English. Um, again, a, a large debate with the editor initially. I mean, Fred Appel was eager to have me do the book. So he, he really said, you know, you can label it whatever you want, but don't you think it would be much more readily recognized if it's the Koran instead of the Koran in English? And we went back and forth over that several times. And I finally, you know, said to Fred, the reason I'm going to stick with the Koran English is because I think for many people who are non-Muslims, especially people who are non-specialists and don't think about the Middle East, the Koran, K-O-R-E-N, is still a term that's in popular parlance and springs readily to mind uh, in a way that Quran, even as you pronounce it, Quran, or if we do really deeply our Quran, to pronounce it correctly in Arabic, Quran rather than Koran, really has um, a difficult resonance for people. I, I, the example I would give to parallel is I spent time teaching in a place called Qatar. And when I call it Qatar, people look at me and say, you mean gutter? And I said, no, no, it's Qatar. And so just that slight difference between the cough in Arabic and the G or the K in English is very, very difficult for people who are non-specialists, haven't been to the Middle East or don't even think about um, idioms or ling linguistic differences or registers that are, are outside of English or European language. So I finally decided I should just accede to the history, but also the usage of the name for this marvelous 
work called the Quran in Arabic or the Quran in English. And so that's how I wound up calling it the Quran in English. But I, I argued and Fred accepted, Fred Appel, my editor at Princeton, accepted my argument that if I was going to call it the Quran in English, I would still start out with, a, as it were, the beginning, the early sequel, the subsequent development of, of Muhammad, the, um, the merchant, into Muhammad, messenger of God and leader of the new movement, or what Fred Donner uh, calls the believers movement. And so I began the Quran in English in very much the way that I began the Quran biography by talking about the prophet Muhammad and talking about him with reference to the two major phases in his life, uh, the period before the Hijra, when he's uh, a Meccan merchant and called to be a prophet, and then when he goes to Medina and he becomes not only uh continues to be not only a prophet, but also an organizer, strategist, um, a military leader, and as well a community organizer. So all these things I, I folded into the initial two chapters uh, of my new book. So one thing that sort of foregrounds this book and that you bring up repeatedly is the fact that there's this internal Muslim conversation about what it means to translate the Quran. Um, so it's tied to this issue of theology. I mean, both in terms of the themes of salvation, but also what does it mean to take what is considered to be the word of God and take it from its original form and place it into the context of another language? So can you describe to us sort of that arc of that conversation over time, that theological conversation? Yeah, and, and, and first of all, um, you know, I, I just have to say I've, I've had a lot of uh, people who thought about this book, uh, encouraged me to do it, advised me on how to do it, corrected me on how to do it better. But I've um, I've never had a question quite like the one you just posed to me about the arc of the conversation about uh, the Quran uh, as an Arabic text uh, and what that means in terms of uh, theology. So I, I love the question, and I, I, I congratulate you and thank you for having framed it as the arc of conversation about the Quran or the, or the special status of the Quran. If one uses the Arabic, yeah, jazz of Quran or the inimitability, the incommensibility of the Quran in Arabic with the Quran in any other language. And I'm sure you know that this, this argument, even just using the word ajaz, ajaz al-Quran means that there is something about it which is unattainable, uh, literally inaccessible in any register except Arabic, any language other than not just Arabic, but the Arabic of the 7th century, early 7th century, and the Hijaz, because of course there are many other dialects of Arabic then and, and now. But that idea that there is... Um, an early Arabic, an Arabic uh, that was spoken um, by a, 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 another source, the attributed to the Archangel Gabriel, another source, the unknown Al-Ghayb in Arabic from the Al-Ghayb uh, through uh, the Archangel Gabriel, these intermittent uh, disclosures to the Prophet Muhammad from 610 till his death in 632 are when they're put together in a single book known as the Quran or the Holy Quran or Quran al-Majid or Quran al-Karim, and it's something which, uh, for many Muslims, because of the stature of the Prophet Muhammad, as not someone who spoke and then other people uh, you know, wrote down things about him, he directly spoke what was revealed to him as the divine revelation, or wah. And so the wah from um, the Archangel Gabriel, Jabil, that came to Muhammad, was therefore in a language that, for many people today, still not only is to be revered and, and remembered and followed, but it cannot be understood, much less translated in any other language. So the only function of a translation 
would be to serve as a supplement or commentary on the original Arabic, but not as a replacement. So there are many people um, in pre-modern times, I'm sure you know the, the, the Iraqi poet Jahid, um, who said, you know, you can do various things in double registers because he also knew and loved Persian. Uh, you can do many things in double registers, but the Quran can only be in Arabic. It can never be translated into Persian or any language. And Sayyid Qutb, if you fast forward to the 20th century, the end of the 20th century, Sayyid Qutb, um, the uh, heralded uh, but also much disputed leader, uh, of, uh, recon reconsidered or renewed version of Islam from Egypt, Sayyid Qutb, also, he was a literary scholar who also said, um, I, I, I understand other languages, and he was actually fairly adept in English, but he said the Quran itself can only be the Quran in Arabic. It can never be the Quran in any other language. Um, so it's not just Muslims, like uh, Jahid Qutb and a whole range of others, but also many non-Muslims have said, you know, Arabic, Arabic poetry, it's just another register. It's, it's so refined and it's so uh, text and region specific that you can't translate it. So for instance, Stefan Wild, very major German scholar, has argued, and uh, I've used him in my book, cited him in my book saying, even though he's not a Muslim, he completely accepts the argument that the Quran can't be translated, as does his uh, Muslim compatriot, Murad Hoffman. But I, I counter that with other examples of scholars, both Muslim and non-Muslim, who say, that, and, and it goes back actually to my time at Princeton when I, when I was a very young person, still trying to define uh, who I was and find a way to uh, match my interests with the career I followed. And I took a course with George Steiner uh, in translation theory using Russian texts, which I didn't understand at all, but, but Steiner was a master at showing how languages uh, are supple, um, how they are able to be um, registered uh, in not just this, this, the source, but, but also in the host uh, community uh, from one period to another and also from one place to another. And I think it's really, if you will, the interest or some people say the virus, the infection I got from that course with George Steiner that taught me to think that translation is tough. It's, it's sometimes not rewarding. Other times it's amazingly um, comforting and, and, and um, successful, uh, but that it always should be tried and that there's no language and no text, including Arabic and including the Quran, that can't be and shouldn't be translated. So I, I come down weighing all the arguments, respecting those who say it can never be translated, the Ajaz al-Quran means the Quran in Arabic, then, now, and forever, but also those on the other side, and I put myself on that side, saying that it must be translated, that it can be, that it's not easy, it's seldom successful, but it's always worth trying, and one must keep trying to do it. Yeah, and I think sort of a testament to that is the fact that most Muslims today are not native Arabic speakers or fluent Arabic speakers, perhaps. Um, so that's a testament to the fact that many have tried and have translated the Quran, and it has it has felt some resonance, even though it's not in the original Arabic. Um, even though I think, and we'll talk about this later, the lyricality of the Arabic is definitely something that is considered one of the key characteristics of the text. But sort of to back up a second, when you introduce the Quran in English to us, we start with several European translations, and it's sort of framed by several tensions. And one of the, these is the idea of discrediting Islam. And 
to some extent, this is sort of what is foregrounded the study of the Middle East and the Western Academy generally, is that um, it was biblical scholars who sort of took to the study of Arabic um, and the study of Islam to, to some extent, to discredit it. So um, you introduced us to two different translations, one of which is Robert of Kettens and then later George Sales, where some of his choices are a little bit more sympathetic to Muslims. Um, but this whole chapter that, um, that you include on these two translations and more, you call this the Orientalist Quran. Is there anything particular behind those choices of words? Oh, anytime one invokes the term Orientalist, there's always, um, a, 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 as it were, a spectrum of different connotations that one can have behind the use of the word Orientalist. And uh, I readily acknowledge the negative use that Orient um, is, as Edward Said um, has made sure that none of us forget, it's, it's always a term that um, connotes asymmetry of power um, and the notion that there is a kind of triumphal uh, Occident or the West that is looking at a backward or uh, stagnant East so there's always this asymmetry of, as it were, global power, political, social, economic, and, of course, military. And that it, culture, rather than being exempt from it, is influenced by it. Um, I knew Everett Said. I have read Orientalism. I've read several of uh, Everett's other books. I knew Everett personally. Um, and I agree that one must always be aware of the possibility and even and sometimes the use of an Orientalist bias. But what I found in these two in these chapters, the chapter where I dealt with Robert of Ketton and also with George Sale and some others, is that people could be part of the Occident. Definitely, in both cases, these people were not only from the Occident, but they were Christian. Uh, Robert of Ketton being a, a Catholic, and he did his translation at the behest of Peter the Venable, who was working as a direct um, instrument uh, and uh, employee of the Pope in the 11th and 12th century. So there's a sense in which it's not only an Orientalist, but a crusader, if you will, Quran in Latin that Robert of Kenton produces. Um, and then much later, George Sale is very much in the period of British expansionism. He himself is an Anglican cleric, not a Catholic, but Anglican, still very much identified with something called the Society for the Propagation of Christian Knowledge, SBCK, which is um, very much a British effort to sort of uh, make sure that uh, its version of um, British or Anglican Christianity uh, pervades some parts of the world, namely those parts that are identified as uh, within the British Empire. So there's there's definitely the asymmetry of power to which Everett Said has called our attention, uh, and that's definitely present in in these two figures. There are others, but these two figures whom I highlight in Chapter Two, uh, that is to say, Robert of Kenton and George Sale. But but I I, I want to just quickly say that, that once one recognizes the bias, one also has to say, are all Orientalists the same? In the same way, are all Muslims or all Muslim translators of the Quran the same? And the answer is no, that there are major differences um, within as, as well as between uh, Orientalists and others. So one of the things that I discovered, which is not mine only, there's other scholars, I should mention Thomas uh, Berman, chief among them, who's worked on Robert of Kenton and shown that what seemed to be his um, non-literal or even uh, his expansive and some people would say two um, individualistic translations of the Quran, 
that he's attempting to, to, to give uh, a place of prestige to the Quran and even to the Prophet Muhammad saying, here is something that is worthy of study. Here's something that really is counter to Christianity in some ways is the enemy, but it's also a worthy enemy. It has a tradition and it has a language and even has a book that when it's translated, it lies with the message of the Christian West. Uh, it's both a competitor and, as it were, a, um, a, a dignified rival that must be recognized as such. So I, I choose in, in looking at the Orientalist Quran to talk about both the competition, but also the complementarity between the backgrounds, the outlooks, and yes, even the question of salvation, the, which you raised, the, the basic question of salvation. Does either Robert of Kenton or George Sale seem to think that Muslims are worthy of salvation insofar as that is a major goal of any religious life. And what I come out with at the, at the end, after spending considerable time on both of them, is they both um, grudgingly, but nonetheless firmly admitted that there is in the Arabic Quran and in the Muslim tradition um, that follows from it uh, a path to salvation which only God knows. So in, in some sense, the Orientalist Quran is not defeating the enemy, but raising it to a level where debates and discussions and what we would call today um, an ecumenical uh, endeavor is possible. So we've sort of talked about this particular Orientalist Quran, but the next chapter um, in the book deals with this issue of um, English translations that emerge in the context of colonialism. And I think it's really interesting because the idea of the English language really threads through this book. I think often English speakers don't think consciously of how English affects our everyday discourses. Um, but I mean, English is basically, it's almost a character in your book, sort of in the, or sort of just threaded through um, the different chapters. So I was curious because of the way you frame it in the South Asian context is what, what is the relationship you see between um, the Quranic translations that emerge out of the South, uh, out of the subcontinent, the English language and colonialism? Yeah, great question. Another great question. And again, I, I've, I've had people hint at it, but nobody who's put it as forthrightly uh, and clearly as you just did. So thank you, um, not only for the program, but for this particular question within it. So, you know, one of the things that struck me when I was putting together this book was was how insistently South Asian name kept, kept coming up. And as I told you, one of my experiences in my own education was to spend... Um, a wonderful two years back in the mid seventies in Aligarh Muslim university. And because of that, I've retained associations and friendships and collegial um, opportunities at Aligarh from the mid seventies till now um, in the middle of the second decade of the 21st century. And so one of the people whom I uh, didn't know then, but I've come to know since is uh, Abdurrahim Kidvai, who is a very prominent English professor uh, at Aligarh Muslim university. And I noticed that one of the things he had done was a survey of not one or two or three or four, but 60 of the translations from other, la from, from other languages uh, into English. When I say other languages, obviously it's, it's the Arabic original, but some of his sources had used texts that were not the Arabic original, but Urdu or Persian renditions of the Quran that then were subsequently translated into English. So sometimes there was a triangle rather than a direct one-to-one -one correlation, these translations. But in any case, they became extant in English 
towards the beginning of the 20th century. And then it just was almost like a kind of contest, uh, not one that was officially declared or one that was openly acknowledged, but nonetheless a contest between various Muslim scholars, not scholars of the Quran, but people with different interests in Islam as a global religion and not merely something that resided in either um, Arabia or the Mediterranean world of Islam, but also in the Asian subcontinent, which of course has a huge Muslim population, the largest of any place in the world. So there was this contest to try and produce a Quran in English that could be um, satisfactory uh, as a, a combat, as a combat, and a, a, both a uh, counterpart and a, and a, and a competitive uh, equivalent to the English Protestant missionaries who were so rampant in North Africa and but also in, in North India during the period of time of the, of, of high high colonialism. That is to say, the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. So one of the things that I found myself doing was going over these names, and I was just surprised at how many of the earliest translators were, were people that identified with Ghulam Ahmad Qadiani, what's called the Ahmadi movement or the Qadiani movement. And subsequently, these people became declared heretics or outside the pale of Orthodox Islam. But in this period of time, which was a period of, of great flux, both politically and socially, but also religiously and culturally in, uh, in, in North India and South Asia generally, um, many of these very devout Ahmadi translators also had friends who were Sunni Muslims and non-Ahmadis. And so I became curious to see how they interacted with each other, what was the competition and what was the level of, of uh, clarity that each hoped to achieve. And I found myself at the end of this chapter saying, uh, the Ahmadis were finally um, bested by Sunni Muslims in the field of da'wah or, or, or competition for, uh, for trying to convert people. But in terms of the translation efforts, the Ahmadis set up a prototype for how to render the Quran from Arabic, not only into Urdu, but also into English. It was followed by their competitors. So it's the irony that there is a, a lot of interest in rent. So to answer your question simply, it's not just the colonial influence, but it's the endeavors uh, that are, as it were, almost a byproduct of colonialism where religious rivalry is as much internal as it's external. That is to say, different people are competing about what is the true nature of not just uh, Islam, but also Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, all these were, were open questions at the end of the 19th, the end of the 20th century. And so what happened in the subcontinent is the Ahmadis did some of the earliest translations and others did translations that were different and often cited the Ahmadis as ones that they didn't like or disapproved of. But in almost every case that I could trace, they were the ones that disagreed from and departed from the Ahmadis, nonetheless were indebted to them for the clarity in which they picked the format to do it, in other words, to make it accessible by verses with some commentary, uh, introducing each chapter so that people knew when there, there was what's called Asbab al-Nazul in Arabic, the occasions of revelation were known, so that one could identify, as it were, the history of the 114 chapters of the Quran, in addition to getting the translation in English. And the biggest, the two big differences that were huge 
were not just about whether or not you could translate the Quran into English, but whether you translated the name Allah into English as God, um, but also the question of whether or not you could render the whole of the Quran in English without having the Arabic equivalent side by side. It's called an um, interfolio translation where you've got one page in English and, one, and its counterpart in Arabic. So there was huge debate about that that goes on from really 1900 to the present for the last 125 years. You could say this has been something that's been contested, and I think it's going to go on for the remainder of, of the present century. No, I'm really glad. I mean, I was just thrilled when I opened that chapter to see that the Ahmadis were included because often they're, I mean, often um, we sort of stick to the Sunni majority in the historiography or even in mainstream discussions of Islam and to see this group, which is, is so critical, as you demonstrated, to the development of Islam as a modern 20th century, 21st century religion. It was really heartening to see just because that group um, is, has, you know, just faced many challenges um, wherever they're found, even in this country, in the U.S. So something else that sort of, again, is threaded through the book is all these themes, even though the book is very clearly divided topically, you just sort of weave all these themes in. And again, that's what makes it so readable, is the idea of lyricality and and and, and how the text can be translated. And you've touched on this before. You, you just mentioned the idea of the word God. But um, at several different points of the book, you, you use other points of comparison, um, other verses. Can you give us some sense of how um, your subjects, different different um, translators at different points in the movement, um, attempted to deal with these issues of lyricality in particular, how to render the text more poetic in English? Well, again, like your previous questions, this one is, is, is something that has a, a precedent and some other questions I've been asked, but no one has put it quite as clearly and directly as you just did. So I should maybe say in trying to answer this question, I should just say that um, your trajectory, your academic trajectory, um, much many decades after mine, still um, parallels mine in going through Jordan. Uh, because you mentioned that you had uh, taken a, a, a intensive course in Arabic in, in Jordan. I wasn't do going through Jordan to study Arabic. I was actually on my way back from uh, different lecture tours that I, that I had made in, in both uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, the Gulf and, and also Egypt. And I had a stop off in Oman on my way back and the plane got delayed. And so I wanted to spend a couple days on my own, as it were, in Oman. And a friend of mine introduced me to uh, a local journalist called Ibrahim Abu Nab. And Ibrahim turned out to be a very wonderfully gracious host. Uh, invited me, you know, at first for tea and then for dinner. And finally, he said, you know, I can understand that you've really done a lot of uh, work on Islam, even though you're not Muslim. And would you like to talk about translation? And I said, oh, that's that's something you can't do. I, I took the standard Orthodox thing, saying, so, you know, you can read the Quran in Arabic, but when you have to translate it, you just paraphrase it. You don't actually embody the sense of the Arabic. He said, well, I, I've been a devout Muslim all my life, but I disagree with you. Can you come over to my house for dinner and let's talk about one thing? And I said, what's that? And he said, the Basmala. I said, well, that we could get that finished with that before dessert. I mean, that's pretty easy. And I told him my quick and ready translation of the Basmala in the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate. He said, well, let's talk about it some more over dinner. So the end result of that dinner was 
uh, uh, friendship, which lasted until his death. Unfortunately, he died later in the 90s. But for about three or four years, he and I were intense uh, conversation and we were just on the cusp of the internet. So sometimes I actually have long letters from him that I got before we started to communicate by the internet. And when I did my earlier book, the Quran, a biography, I dedicated it to, uh, I'm just reading from it, uh, Dr. Ibrahim Abunab, who lived the truth of quote, seeking God's purpose every day, unquote, uh, Quran, Surah Rahman, verse 29. Now, if you looked up Surah Rahman, verse 29, you'd be hard pressed to find out how, he conjectured that that meant in English seeking God's purpose every day. But that's precisely his point is that he didn't take the literal meaning of any verse, including this particular wonderful verse from Surah Rahman, in its literal initial Arabic. He always wanted to have it as a purposeful counterpart in English. And I think he was the one who gave me the courage to think if he could do it, and he did it as a devout Muslim and somebody who was a PhD in English literature from, from Indiana, and I could try and do it my own humble way uh, with some other resources that I had. So we spent a long time talking about the Basmala. And I, I, won't, I, I won't, because we're having a short rather than an all-day or all-night interview. But the, the, the short end, the, the, the summary of our long, long discussion, which, by the way, went on from 8 o'clock until Fudger Prayer. So we, we talked for almost eight hours on just this one question of how do you translate the Basmala into English? At the end of it, he said that he preferred to have, in the name of Allah, the compassion, the compassionate. And so I said to him, well, first of all, in my humble view, you can't approach or expect to reach an English-speaking audience or an audience that's majority English-speaking, native English-speaking, if you don't translate Allah as God. So we differed on that. And then I said, secondly, I don't think you can use two adjectives because Rahman and Rahim are both adjectives. You can't have one be a noun, the compassion, and the second one be the compassionate. Um, so we agree to disagree. And then he said, well, tell me, you know, what is yours? And so I said, well, I prefer in the name of God, full of compassion, ever compassionate. And he kind of looked and he said, well, we spent a long time in this. I guess we both agree that we respect the other's difference. But the one thing we have in common that we don't share with any other translator is that you have to translate the Rahman and Rahim with an echo of the original rhyme in English. So if you look, and it's a very simple test, it's, you know, people have been joking about uh, what you have as a simple test of whether someone's telling the truth or not in public affairs. Well, the simple Abu Nub test about Arabic is if you have something that's is so common, and everybody whom I've ever met who knows anything about Arabic, and especially anybody who's Muslim, knows that the Basmala is the heart of kind of not just the Quran, but everyday piety as well as Salat and, and, and one's outlook. So Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim just flows off the tongue and readily um, in conversation. But to render this in English respectfully and lyrically, one has to have a higher register than just saying in the name of God, the beneficent, the merciful, because it doesn't rhyme. The Rahman and rahim don't rhyme. So one of the things that um, I learned from him is that, that it's, it's not easy, it's, it's, it's challenging, it's a continuous challenge and difficulty, but it's absolutely necessary that when you have a saj, or rhyme prose in Arabic, which is most of the Quran, you have to at least get an echo of the Arabic, or else 
you are succumbing to those who say Arabic stands by itself. The Ajaz al-Quran means you can only provide a complementary or a, a, a parallel text, but you can't ever provide a substitute or something that at least is an echo of hope for those who don't know Arabic in whatever language, and in this case, English. So I, I'm, I became convinced because of my overnight, my delayed, unexpected, uh, people would say it's either uh, baraka or just good luck. I think it was maybe both that I happened to be in Amman the same time as Ibrahim Abu Nab, and we struck up this friendship. Uh, it was only three days old, but it lasted for another three or four years afterwards. And I, I came away from that meeting, even though I'd been at that point a student and a teacher, if you will, uh, of topics Islamic for over 20 years. I never thought about Arabic language, the Quran and the Arabic of the Quran, and also the challenge and the, and the prospect of translation as clear as I did before that conversation with Ibn Ibn You know, it's funny. I'm thinking about it. I like both of your translations very much because I think um, if you translate one as compassion and the compassionate, um, as your friend Ibrahim al-Nab did, you just have a sense of the Arabic language too. I think you have a sense of the fact that, you know, verbs and, and, and uh, verbs and nouns and adjectives can sort of shift places in different sentences, similar to in English, but in a very different way. Um, but also I think um, yours also has sort of the evocative, it, it evokes um, very much the sense of repetition in Arabic also more directly. The fact that in Arabic, you're encouraged to repeat, to use words that mean exactly the same thing um, in the same sentence in tandem with each other. So I, I don't know, I like both of yours. And actually um, thinking about it, thinking about this issue of translation, but also how to render texts, I just kind of want to zoom ahead to, or maybe even back, because this is both your last chapter, but it's also on the cover. And when I got the book and I and I saw the cover, I I... I I had to think for a moment because you have the American Quran by, um, is it Sandow Burke? Sandow Burke, yeah, Sandow Burke. Uh -huh. Sandow Burke on the yeah. cover. And I had spent one afternoon, I had just stumbled across this. It's a huge volume. I think it's easily like a foot and a half long, a foot wide. Um, oh. It's this beautiful translation um, done in blue. And then you, you um, as you go through the book, it's a translation of the Quran or an interpretation, however you wish to put it. But in the background, you have these beautiful images of American life. Um, can you tell us about how, how and why you decided to integrate it into the book? Yeah, and, and I, I, I want to pair Sandow Birk with, it may sound strange to you, but I want to uh, pair Sandow Birk um, with, with Michael Sells. <clears throat> so Michael Sells, um, Unlike me, is, is is a scholar of Arabic poetry and also a translator of, of the Quran. Uh, his approach to the Quran, um, early revelations, uh, which came out about fifteen, uh, maybe almost eighteen years ago now, nineteen ninety nine or two thousand. <clears throat> um, Sells said, you know, I can I can translate it in English, but I can't get the music, so I have to do recitation. So I don't know if you've ever seen that book of his, but he has in the back of it he has a disc which includes uh, includes uh, Quran translations. And they're, 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 they're beautiful, and for, even for people. And this is, this again, um, you know, somebody would call this da'wah. I, I simply call this uh, accessibility of, um, um, of, of beautiful, but, but, but still a very layered tradition to people who don't have any access or any background in it. So I would say that the reason that the Cell book is so startling is that Cell has some interesting translations. People would say even quirky at some points of 
um, the, the the final um, section uh, of of the of the of the Quran, but by including this disc with recitation back, he's sort of challenging anybody who wants to understand the Quran to just listen to the music to understand the musicality of it. So in a way, he's doing this, if you will, as an aesthetic gesture, but it's a gesture to sound, which, as you know, is one of the major elements of the Quran and and of Islam is the voice and the resonance of Arabic, uh, not, or to put it differently, you can't really understand the meaning unless you grasp something of the beauty of the language. So he is trying to do that. And I think what Birk, the reason I pair Michael Sells with Sandow Birk is that Birk is trying to make the same, if you will, aesthetic gesture, but instead of doing it with sound, he's doing it with sight. Sandow Birk is using pictures, pictures that he uses uh, that surround his own version of the Quran, which is not a translation directly from the Arabic or from French or uh, German or any, uh, actually he knows Spanish because his wife is Mexican. It's not because of any other language that he's using. He's, he's, he's really uh, scanned all of the available translations and decided that Rodwell, whom I mentioned in my book, but who's not major in the way in which Two other people I haven't talked about, Yusuf Ali and, 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 and Marmaduke Pictou, are both major translators in English. Nobody would rank Rodwell at the same level uh, and the same importance uh, uh, of either Muhammad Ali, the Ahmadi translator I mentioned in Chapter 2, or either Yusuf Ali or later um, Marmaduke Pictou. Nonetheless, it's very accessible in English. You can find it, you can find it, and you can um, download it and use it uh, uh, in a, in, a, in a voice messaging or uh, rotor rooter when you're going to um, microphone when you're going to be uh, running. So there's lots of ways in which uh, Rodwell has been made accessible as a kind of early accurate translation of the Quran, again, by somebody who's not Muslim, but somebody who has a feel for the Arabic language. And so this guy, Sandow Beric, used Rodwell as the basis, but then he interspersed it with others, and the major one he used besides Rodwell was Muhammad Assad. And I think this is, to me, what really makes the two elements. The one that you notice is the bulk of it, because he used all these images that portray a single line of the Quran to give you a frame border that kind of forces you to look in the text and look from the text back to the image, as it were, to kind of do a visual, uh, a, a visual commentary or tafsir uh, in modern 21st century English. But the other thing he does is he lifts out certain phrases from Muhammad Assad, which is another big bulky book. I don't know if you've ever tried to buy or uh, take out from Firestone a copy of uh, Muhammad Assad's message of the Quran. But in its small version, it's maybe weighs, you know, eight, eight pounds, but its larger version probably weighs 12 pounds. So again, these are big books, not only big because they're important, but big because the people who've done them have decided that marketing for a mass audience is not their major um, issue, but making sure that what they market reflects the beauty and the complexity, both the beauty and the complexity of the original. So Sandow Beer does not compromise on size. As you said, it's, it's a huge thing. It's maybe eight inches by 14 inches, and it weighs uh, at least uh, 12 pounds. Um, I often joke when I go to talk with people and they say, you know, we, we really like beer, but it's too heavy. I said, um, you know, carry, carry it in a book bag and make sure that you share a copy with a friend because it's too heavy for one person to carry. <laughs> um, 
but it's worth it's worth the effort. It's it's worth the heavy lift, and because what he has done is to go through and trans transliterate and transcribe not not only the translation of of, of um, Rodwell, but also with interspersions interspersions sometimes from Tom Cleary. I didn't mention Tom Cleary, but that's another modern translation uh, by uh, somebody who's not a Muslim, but somebody who's very poetically gifted, Thomas Cleary, the Quran translation, which w- was a follow-up from his earlier one called the Quran, uh, abbreviated the Quran, the essence of the Quran. So there's a sense in which um, both Cleary and um, Assad give Sandow Birk license to kind of modify, if you will, update, uh, to uh, access the original text of the Quran in English with a more readable form of Rodwell. But I think what what led me to put the cover that you liked or the cover that you noticed of, of, of Sandow Birk on my, the cover of my own book was um, I couldn't find out enough about him online, so I finally called him, wound up having a long conversation, and I, I finally said to him, you know, um, for lots of reasons, I think Surah Yasin, you know, Quran 36 is sort of the heart of the Quran. I know there's Surah Al-Fatiha and Surah Al-Ikhlas that could also be called the heart of the Quran, but Surah Yasin has a certain echo. I don't need to explain it to you, but for some people I have to say, well, it's really used in funerals, but it has a lot of meaning before death, and it has a lot of meaning and value after death. So in one sense, Yasin is really a crucial, but unlike Fatiha uh, and also unlike Ikhlas, it is simply two letters. And so many people, when I, when you say Yasin, you might as well be talking, a, which you are talking, a foreign language. They don't understand why it's so important. And what Muhammad Assad did, and Sandal Birk followed him, was to translate Yasin as, O human being. And you don't find this anywhere. You don't find this in Rodwell. You don't find Cleary, Yusuf Ali, Pickthall. None of these predecessors. They all followed deliberately repeating the Arabic and English as Yasin. But Muhammad Assad said, if I'm going to train, and if you read his introduction, it's a fascinating introduction. Uh, he says, if I'm going to make the Quran accessible to English-speaking readers, I have to translate every word possible. So he translates Allah as God. He has specific renditions for Rahman and Rahim. Every single word that he can, he translates in English. And when he comes to a chapter title like Yasin, he looks at all the commentaries. Oh, there is this one commentary that says actually in a, a kind of a Arabic dialect at the time of the Prophet Muhammad, um, Yasin could be uh, an abbreviation for Ya Insan. And so taking that as a possibility, he says, oh, human being, rather than Yasin, it's sort of an abbreviation for Ya Insan. And so uh, instead of just ignoring that, he picks this up, he picks this up, uses this his own, but instead of saying, oh, thou human being, he just says, oh, human being. So he's direct, he's, he's both embracing Assad's translate. First of all, he's saying it can be translated, which many people say, oh, Yasin is only Yasin in Arabic. He's first of all agreeing you can translate, but secondly, what he's doing that is, I think is marvelous is he's, as it were, updating, he's making what Assad tried to do in 1980 He's trying to do in, 19, in, 12, in 2016, 35 years later, he's trying to make it more accessible in English by saying, oh, human being, and then 
he transcribes the rest of the sort of Yasin in marvelous block English with this uh, image of the fields around that, that echoes the one verse that you see around you, everything dead, and I bring it to life. So it's, I think it's, it's, it's both uh, what I call imitative, that is to say he, he Sandow Berk, imitates some predecessors, but it's also innovative because he's using new instruments, in his case art, border art, interesting calligraphy, a new format for the Quran to introduce its message for, 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 for people who basically may be interested in Islam, puzzled by the Quran, but never thought about something called American Quran. Yeah, I would highly encourage, um, I mean, in addition to picking up your book, but to look at the front cover at the very least and just admire um, this particular um, excerpt of sorts from the American Quran by Sandra Burke. So before I let you go, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit what, about what you're working on right now, any current projects, anything you're looking forward to? Yeah, well, uh, well, thank you for the question. And one of the things I did in this book, which I hesitated to do, but if, if, you, if you read the chapter where I call the Quran up close and I talk about rhyme prose, I mentioned sort of two of my, my favorite people. Not, not that I don't have lots of people that I in conversation, but two of my favorite people um, – are who, who do work relating to uh, the Quran is, is, is a scholar named Shaukat Turawa, who's now head of the Middle East Studies uh, Department at Yale, Yale University. Um, he had been at Cornell for a number of years. He's a PhD from Penn uh, under George Moctesi. And he's not, you know, a widely heralded scholar. You know, I, I wouldn't, certainly not at the level of Michael Cook or maybe even perhaps Qasem Zaman. He's a different sort of scholar than either of them. But he's very much involved in translation and in thinking about trans. So he's done a lot of what I would call first efforts at <clears throat> rhyme prose of the Quran, picking up some of the elements of Saj from the Quran <clears throat> and trying to echo it in modern English. So in that chapter, if you remember that chapter where I talk about rhyme prose matters, I refer to, uh, to his translation and how it was very helpful to me to use it in thinking about you know, a lot of the shorter chapters, but also some of the longer ones, uh, including sort of Maryam, uh, where actually I, I went through line by line with Shaukat on how to render some parts of, of, of that, which is in all the translations. And I would, I would sort of put this down as a stake in the ground and defy anybody to say there's a more difficult chapter. Of all the chapters where when you say, okay, we accept the challenge to translate, we also accept the prospect that you can get an equivalent in English of what's in the Arabic Quran. Surah Maryam, the 19th chapter of the Quran, to me stands at a level of difficulty, but also reward that's beyond any other that I've attempted. So I, I helped Turabo with what he did and what he published in the Journal of Quranic Studies. But then later on, so so, so Turabo and I still have an ongoing project where we're hoping to do something which, which is going to be called... Um, the, the choral Quran, that sounds like a funny term, but choral meaning there are going to be different voices on how to translate the Quran. And um, we're still in negotiation with NYU Press that very much wants to do a combined work from the two of us. But we're thinking of doing something where we, we there are 114, as you know, 114 surahs or chapters of the Quran, where we go and get a sample of each person who is a major translator and and, and have them do their rendition and include all these different samples and just say a word or two about what their approach is and then give an example of it by this translation that we include. And believe it or not, we've got 
130 prospects, we have to narrow it down to 114 of different people who are serious enough, important enough, well enough known translators of the Quran into English that we could select for each one a chapter of the Quran and have the composite version of that be called a choral Quran with our own commentary. So that's one project uh, that I'm doing with Shalkot Torawa from Yale. The other one that's even, I think that will probably get done maybe not next year, but maybe by 2019. But if something that's 2020, which seems like a distant goal, but it's going to be here in three years. So a 2020 goal for me um, is something I've been working on with another scholar, another collaborative project named Rafi Habib. I don't think, have you ever heard of him? Probably not, because he's a scholar of, of English literature. He's obviously a Muslim, uh, but he's, a, a, um, as it were, a kind of lay Muslim, like a lot of the other people who've translated the Quran. He's not a specialist in either Arabic or Quranic studies. But Rafi Habib has been somebody I've, talked with for the last few years and actually we decided um, to accept an invitation from Norton the, 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 the same publisher that by the way that published um, Sandow Birk the uh, American Quran and also did we didn't mention Jane McAuliffe did her own rendition of the Norton critical edition of the Quran which is essentially Pictal uh, updated so so W.W. Norton which is a major publisher for New York does a lot of different uh, books, including the two I just mentioned, one by Birk and the one by Jay McAuliffe. They approached um, Habib, Rafi Habib and me to do a joint translation in verse of the entire Quran. So we've been at it for now three years, and I think we're going to be at it for another three more years. Uh, we're about oh, maybe one-fourth to one-third into it, uh, including translate Surah Maryam, and Surah Yasin, but several others. Surah Rahman was probably, it probably took us two months just on Surah Rahman. So this is not something you do lightly or overnight, but um, I should say, inshallah, within the next three to four years, I hope that there'll be two more books um, that I'm working on with, with other scholars that will be produced. One called the Choral Quran with Shauka Tarawa uh, that will sort of expand what I tried to do in this book on looking at the Quran in English, and then another work which will actually be a separate standalone. It will not be with an Arabic parallel or counterpart, a standalone translation. If I had to say the one that's closest as a kind of already done version would be the the one that's done by Tarif Khalidi. I don't know if you know that. Tarif Khalidi from AUB did a translation which was under Penguin. Uh, it's a, It was the counterpart... Um, to uh, an earlier translation that had been done from uh, from Penguin, um, and they decided to do the uh, by Daud Dawood. They decided to do a new one by Todd of Holiday called the Quran, which is really an attempt to do it in verse. But I think it 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 doesn't it doesn't flow as well as I would like, and it's, or it, it flows in a different way than what Rafi Habib and I are trying. So those are my two big projects: one with Shaukat Tarawa. It's more an extended commentary, and then the other one that's going to be a new translation that I'm doing with Rafi Habib. Well, those both sound like really exciting projects and things that are really necessary, as well as this book, The Quran in English. I think that you just, this is just something that needs to sort of come out at this point in history, and people need to become increasingly familiar with the Quran and the Quran and, and Muslims in general. So I thank you both for the interview, but also just for the book. It's, it's really an accomplishment. Well, thank you for the interview, and thank you for your very uh, catalytic and informative questions. Oh, no, thank you.